Hello, and welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, alongside senior medical advisor, Dr. Donna DiMichele, and made possible thanks to our featured advertiser, Sanofi. I'm your host and resident person with hemophilia, Patrick James Lunch, and welcome to the first episode of season three. I am thrilled to have you with us. Two years ago, the Global Hemophilia Report launched with an episode dedicated to gene and novel therapies. At that time, there were no commercially approved gene therapy treatment options available anywhere in the world. Today, there's an approved gene therapy product for each of hemophilia A and hemophilia B approved in multiple markets. An exciting development to be sure, but not an uncomplicated one. And given the challenges that have emerged now that the products are available, alongside those that still remain following initial clinical trials, Dr. DeMichele and I thought the best way to kick off season three would be to return to the topic of gene therapy for an updated conversation with some of the field's most expert clinician scientists. Dr. DeMichele frames and introduces the discussion with our panel right after this quick break. Life with hemophilia shouldn't be defined by limits, and the right education along the way can be a game changer. Sanofi is here to provide education and resources to help you manage treatment, care, and lifestyle on your own terms, so you can focus on what matters most. Okay, I'm joined by Dr. D. McKelly. So Dr. D. McKelly, before we jump into the conversation, set the stage for our audience. Why was it important for us to revisit the topic of gene therapy as the first episode in season three of the Global Hemophilia Report? Patrick, I think it was really important to discuss gene therapy again. We first really talked about gene therapy as a novel therapeutic in your first season, and that was in 2022. Since then, Europe and North America have now licensed products for hemophilia A and B, one each, licensed in 2022 and 2023. And so I think we both thought that this was going to be a great time to revisit a lot of the expectations and goals of gene therapy to understand how they've been realized, how they haven't been, what are the ongoing challenges, where are we now as this becomes available in the clinic, and most importantly, if we're not where we want to be, what do we need to do to get there from a research perspective. So I think this was timely and I really look forward to hearing what our experts have to say. And I really look forward to the patient perspective on this. With that, let's get into it. Gene therapy redux, the end of the beginning. Okay, hi everyone. My name is Margaret Ozello. I'm an adult hematologist and professor at the University of Campinas, Unicamp in Brazil. Hello, everyone. Dr. Stephen Pipe. I'm a professor of pediatrics and pathology at University of Michigan. And despite being a pediatric treater, I've also been PI on the investigative gene therapy that's been going on at our center. I'm Dr. Lindsay George. I am an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and a hematologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm a physician scientist and then have been involved in hemophilia A, the gene therapy trials. All right, team, off we go. Steve, I'm going to ask you to begin by talking about 
where we stand with gene therapy, how we got to where we are now. And I'm going to ask you very specifically to start with just a brief description of the clinical trial data that led to the licensure of Hingenics, um, the Factor Nine gene therapy product. I think it's important to recall that the goal for gene therapy was to allow patients to no longer require prophylaxis and be able to maintain effective bleed control in the absence of prophylaxis. I think aspirationally, we hope that we could uniformly do that in all patients and also to a degree of correction that patients not only would not need prophylaxis anymore, but wouldn't need any hemostatic support for any reason, including with trauma or surgical interventions. The platform that was brought forward to the community was influenced by how well current slate of therapeutic products were that we were using in our patient populations. We had to bring a therapy that had sufficient risk benefit that this population could embrace a gene therapy of this nature. And that's how we ended up with the AAV liver targeted strategy for hemophilia. Uh, it's still been a long process, probably 25 years working with AAV to get us to this point. And when I now look back over all of the sort of key milestones we hit, I think you could still argue that this platform has delivered the ability for the vast majority of recipients to be able to come off prophylaxis and remain off prophylaxis, not uniformly, but predominantly. And the safety profile over now we have some trials that are well beyond 10 years. And we actually had just a nice report at ASH from the UCL St. Jude group. 10 plus years of follow-up on those heme B patients and really no new safety issues over the longer term. That allows us to assess the current risk benefit with the platforms that have now been moved to commercialization. And in the case of hemogenics that you mentioned, this is the AV5 vehicle for delivering the Padua variant of factor nine. And what this has done with that highly active factor nine is it has achieved results where just under 90% of the participants are in the mild to the normal range who've received this product. And that's clinical trials. And then now what we're hearing from the few patients who are also receiving it commercially. It's still quite a range though, if you look at the distribution, and that number still sticks out to me. Almost all of the patients have been able to stay off prophylaxis and just under 90% are in the mild uh, to normal range. If you set expectations with the patients ahead of time, I think the risk benefit has proven that this was a worthy product to be approved for the heme B population. That was a great summary. Thanks, Steve. Margaret, I'm going to ask you to do the same for factor A. Tell us a little bit and summarize the results of the clinical trials for the currently licensed product for hemophilia A. The Veloctococ gene Roxaparvovec is the vector, AV5 vector, who became licensed recently and showed some very promising results. 
During the phase one and two, we could see in the first year that some of the seven patients who were treated with this dose achieved even normal range of the factor eight expression. And with a median factor rate expression around 64%. But from year one to two, we have a decrease in the terms of the factor rate expression. And even six years after, what was a mean of around 64% of factor rate expression in the seven first patients, we have now around 10% or 5% in the median of the factor eight expression. Even though we move forward with the phase three and 134 patients receive the same drug. And what we are seeing is, again, a quite high expression in the first year, although with a huge variability that what we are seeing for all hemophilia A and hemophilia B patients who receive gene therapy. But we achieve at that point for these 134 patients, I mean, of around 43% of the factor eight expression. In the year two, we started to see a decrease in the factor eight expression. And after three years, is around 18% patients. What we can say is that although we can even reach normal range of the factor eight expression for some patients, Durability became an issue, and despite this fact, we are seeing some clinical benefit, decrease in the number of the bleeding events. And after three years, we could say 15% of the patients is back to the prophylaxis, but the majority is free of bleeding events after they receive the gene therapy. But there are challenges for sure, and there are some things to be improved. Yeah, thanks for that summary. There's been no doubt, according to the clinical trial reports, that there's been clinical benefit from both of these gene therapy products. But Lindsay, I want to go to something you wrote early on in uh, 2023 with Ben Samuelson-Jones, and you ended up uh, your review by saying, Importantly, despite repeated proof-of-concept success in current hemophilia gene therapy, stable, durable factor VIII or factor IX expression that can ameliorate bleeding in all patients is an unrealized hope, and it defines the development goals for the next generation of gene-based products. Talk a little bit about how important this reliability, predictability, and durability of both factor VIII and factor nine levels is. You know, what Steve and Margaret have presented is quite remarkable accomplishment. And so I guess what I'm about to say either represents extreme optimism that we can be better in the future or a perhaps pessimistic view, but I think it's more, hopefully you'll agree with me, it's more the former. So thus far, we talked about the two licensed HEME and B vectors, but general observations seen in those trials have been replicated outside of these trials as well. What this work has done is outline the next series of limitations we need to overcome. And some of them, there's some shared commonalities between the HEME and HEME-B efforts, and then there are some observations that appear to be specific to the HEME work. So I'll just say the commonalities is there's not a great measure of predictability in terms of factor level of expression, but I will say there's some reasonable level of predictability in terms of phenotypic improvement. For my fellow laypeople, phenotypic improvement means improvement to the observable characteristics or symptoms, with the distinction here being that while factor levels may be difficult to predict, 
Improvement to observable characteristics is not as difficult to perceive or predict. This raises a question of how meaningful are factor levels actually, but Dr. D. McKelly will call that back a little later. For now, back to phenotypes. The phenotypic improvement across the board is quite remarkable. So you have to balance a lab finding and something that gives a certain amount of peace of mind to patients with an actual observation in the patients. So to be clear, the majority of the patients in the HEME-B, as Steve noted, have been remarkable phenotypic improvement. The HEME-A work is not quite as strong, but somewhere on the order, I think Margaret could correct me, but two-thirds or so of patients had amelioration of phenotype. But the ability to predict who won't have that is unclear. And so if you're my patient and I'm speaking to you, that presents a conundrum. And then I think the piece of optimism for the future is if we get better at this, have you missed your one-time opportunity by being, so to speak, the forebearer of patients receiving license vectors? Unlike factor replacement therapy, if a patient onboards to AAV gene therapy and does not experience a favorable outcome, there's no second shot or redosing. The immune system has now produced antibodies to AAV, so to the point, the forebearers of gene therapy of today will not be those who benefit from additional development of technology tomorrow. And then lastly, I'll just say, which Margaret alluded to, was this question of durability around hemophilia A. And importantly for hemia, as Steve mentioned, there has been a now a, up to a decade of demonstrable sustained expression, even with the license vector, I think it's something like up to five years or so in the early patients. So, you know, clearly evidence of durability there, but not in HEMA, for the license vector anyways. Yeah. And as we go forward, how important are the actual factor levels maybe more or less of an issue. The question really is predictability and durability. Back with more after this quick break. Living with hemophilia comes with unique challenges, especially for parents. Sanofi is committed to providing education and resources for the whole family because life shouldn't be limited and neither should your parenting journey. Sanofi's Your Family, Your Way Forward program explores how living with hemophilia can impact parents and shares strategies for finding a balance and a path forward that helps the whole family thrive. Redefine what's possible for you and your family. Visit redefininghemophilia.com to browse resources and find an event near you. Welcome back. Now, picking up on this point of predictability and durability, and given the data that we have around AAV gene therapy, there were some who were suggesting in the literature and in discussion throughout the community that the eventual licensure of these gene therapies ought to be accompanied by some type of, call them, regulatory body reservations. These are things like risk and mitigation evaluation strategies or conditional approvals but in the end, that did not happen. Why? Dr. Pipe shares his thoughts. I don't know if reservations is the right word, but <clears throat> there's definitely post-marketing obligations that are required. There's going to be long-term follow-up. And in this platform of therapy, when we say long-term, we're talking like 15 years of corporate responsibility for collecting data on these patients. We've now transitioned our early clinical trial patients onto these long-term follow-up studies. Whether we can retain them all in the long-term follow-up is maybe a question for another day, but we hope that we will be able to maintain and actually produce that data over the longer term. But there are some open questions 
that have been asked of these clinical trial programs that have to be addressed through ongoing clinical trials. So we're in a unique situation where we have an approved platform of therapy for a specified population, but there's also active clinical trials with the, with the approved product that are mandated by the regulators to produce more information. I think it does highlight that there are some reservations, if you like, at a community level that we just know we need more data. I think that summarizes it well. Riffing from that then, that they're licensed, how have these therapeutics been received by the community. Has either product been licensed in Brazil, Margaret? We don't have a gene therapy license yet, but in a place as Latin America, Brazil, South Africa, I think the possibility for the patients to be more enthusiastic for gene therapy could be higher because it's not guaranteed that we have all the other options to offer to them. Very important perspective. What about Europe and North America? What are you hearing as you bring forth these options into the therapeutic armamentarium that's already pretty robust? Fundamentally, with these approvals, this is now an option for patients. But when I look back over some of the pivotal new therapeutics that appeared in our landscape over the last 30 years that I've been involved in hemophilia, you know, we're not in a must-have situation here with gene therapy at least in the North American population, I think for much of Europe. And accordingly then, I'm not expecting patients to be banging down my door trying to line up for gene therapy. We're having these conversations, but you know, we're not bringing patients back early from their last visit because I have to talk to you about gene therapy. It's part of the normal follow-up process. We're updating them on the data and they're needing to take some time to really think about whether this is the right option for them right now. There's clearly patients who see it as a great option now and they want to get queued up, but it's not going to be the dominant therapeutic application that I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Lindsay, are you noticing that as well? And is it the same for hemophilia A and hemophilia B? There's probably perhaps more enthusiasm for the current licensed hemophilia B work than the hemophilia A work, probably largely because of durability concerns with the hemophilia A vector. But if you just look worldwide at the uptake, you can count on one hand the number of heme B and heme A patients that have received a licensed vector. And the heme B vector has been licensed for a year. The heme vector has been licensed in Europe for 18 months, licensed in the United States for six months. So there are some complexities there, right? Because levels of care, insurance companies, the manufacturers had to get ready to deliver. But I think if you just look at the raw numbers, it, it does tell you something about the enthusiasm for the uptake. But I just want to come back to you look at the numbers and then you look at the exp- I've had experience following patients that have received vector and had a good outcome. And it is, the experience of being with them, of course, is quite remarkable, the impact this can have on their lives. And sometimes it's not necessarily captured in a figure that you see presented at a conference. So I do think that the uptake, I think it's fair to say, has been slow. I think that once people have, it's a completely novel therapy as well. And there are some concerns, as we've already started to address. But my guess is that there will be slow uptake, but when there's additional sort of critical mass, if you will, that there might be improved. Now, in the meantime, we might come up with second generation approaches that are better, which is what we all hope, I think. And then the last thing I'll say is the caveat there is if we saw really remarkable benefit, if we could predict everybody was going to have X response and it was going to be durable and ameliorate phenotype, I suspect we would be calling people into clinic 
to talk about gene therapy. The picture is very clear from what you said. Patrick, what do you want to add to this? As a person with hemophilia A, what strikes me about the discussion is the variability and the unpredictability. Because traditionally, if I was interested in a new product or changing my regimen, I would go into my clinic, I would talk through my goals and my thought process with the hematologist and other clinicians at the center. And based on that, we'd make a decision about the treatment and the dose. And based on the data for things like factor replacement therapy and emicizumab, I think we'd have high confidence of what the outcome would be. Here, there does not seem to be that high confidence in particular for hemophilia A. So while on one hand, the factor levels may be low, but the phenotype suggests that we are at least achieving the goal of the majority of patients not needing prophylactic use of factor. So that's a positive. But for me, that's not enough. For me, I need more. Yeah, Patrick, your example is a good one. There's a very individualized approach here. We've embraced this sort of idea of shared decision-making with each patient interaction. I've been surprised at some of the reasons why patients have wanted to go through gene therapy in the clinical trial setting. You're right, we have to set expectations with patients about what the range of outcomes is. There are some basic outcomes that I think I can be pretty definitive on, which is almost everyone's going to be able to come off Profi right from the beginning. How long they will be able to remain off Profi is open question. I think less so with factor nine, maybe still an issue for some factor eight patients. But I also think you get a signal of what the response is going to be within a reasonable framework. I think within the first six months, I have a pretty good idea of what that outcome is going to look like and the trajectory is going to look like for both heme A and for heme B. And that allows me then to help manage the patient going forward. The other thing that is different here is if you want to call it the fallback position, I feel pretty confident that in almost every situation, the fallback positions are very strong for both heme A and heme B. These are all the things we talk about. And for a patient who ticks all those boxes in our conversation and gene therapy still is going to potentially be a great option for them, then I have some really compelling stories, as Lindsay said, of what this can mean for their life and how it really is different, I think, from being on routine prophylaxis. And if that's enough for them to go forward, then I think it is a good option. I remember from a very young age being introduced to the concept of a first-generation product, a second-generation product, and the idea that with each ensuing generation, we're iterating, we're improving, and that things are generally getting better with each subsequent generation. I am very much of the disposition that for my one-and-done opportunity, I want the technology to be a little further along. I want my confidence in my outcome to be a little bit further along. And so for me right now, no change is the right move. And that is true. For me, right now, no change is the right move. But let's move away from discussion of predictability and durability and talk about some of the other challenges as it relates to safety and efficacy with gene therapy. And there are a few different challenges that exist. Some are different between hemophilia A and hemophilia B. But which of them, to use a term of Dr. Donna DiMichele's, are the real showstoppers? Which challenges should we be paying particular attention to? Consider that we are using the AV vector platform. I think the AV immunogenicity 
is the big issue. Immunogenicity, meaning the ability of a protein or cell to invoke an immune reaction. So, for instance, AAV immunogenicity in humans refers to an immune reaction provoked by the introduction of AAV. It's worth highlighting that this reaction actually indicates a healthy immune system, but in the case of gene therapy, for example, it's an unwanted reaction. It's particular for when we are using high dose of the vector, and this happens for the hemophilia A gene therapy, some of the hemophilia B, we can use a lower dose. But because of this possibility of the immune response, we have been used immunosuppressants quite a lot. And as what we are seeing in the phase three clinical trial for hemophilia A that was uh, licensed, the ALT elevations, the transaminides that we are seeing among the patients was quite high, more than 80%. Elevated ALT levels are concerning, as ALT levels, generally speaking, indicate a reaction or even injury in the liver. And most of the patients use it for quite a long period of time immunosuppressant, and then we needed to deal with all the issues related to the side effects of these immunosuppressants. This was a huge challenge, particularly in the first year of the gene transfer. I think we are learning a little bit more how to manage that, but it's still one of the huge impact among the patients and not only the patient, but the healthcare professional that's following these patients, how we make the decisions. This is one of, I think, the biggest challenge. Biomarkers of gene therapy, such as elevated ALT levels, may hold the key to better understanding AAV's true impact on the body for better and for worse. I just wanted to bring one perspective that's of the use of AV vectors outside the hemophilia population. So I have a role here at CHOP overseeing AV work at the institution and, you know, AV of course is being used for many disorders and some of the vector doses being used are quite a bit higher than what's being used in the hemophilia population. And there is potential for major toxicities if you use AV vector doses. There are major toxicities that have been observed at the upper limit of doses being used in hemophilia. I do worry as we start treating more patients at those vector doses of the sort of not the pristine non-comorbidity patient that oftentimes gets enrolled in these trials that we may see some of these major toxicities with these doses. And I hope I'm wrong. But I do think there is potential risk for major toxicities, cardiac toxicities, thrombotic microangiopathy with renal failure at some of the upper end doses being used in hemophilia. You've opened up this issue of, so there are two issues. What are the challenges you're most worried about among the challenges you've seen? And then what are the challenges we haven't seen that maybe most worry you? And one of the ones that keeps coming up is inhibitor development. And so what about that? Is that do a concern? We haven't seen inhibitors to factor eight or factor nine in any of the trials. And this is now going on many years. This is a pretty selected group of patients, though, to participate in the trials. They've all been extensively on factor replacement therapy. So all the patients who were higher risk for inhibitor have all been weeded out and they have not been part of this population. Could it ever happen? Yes. I'm not sure it would happen because of the platform of therapy, though. Even previously treated patients at a very low rate, 0.1%, maybe to 1%, can develop inhibitors over the course of a lifespan with exposure to factor products that's related to immunologic mechanisms, loss of tolerance, however you want to think about that. To clarify, 
Dr. Pipe's point here is that someone like me, who developed an inhibitor to factor replacement, then later tolerized that inhibitor, does still have a theoretical risk of 0.01 up to maybe 1% of a chance that upon my switching my treatment, my immune system may develop an inhibitor once again. In other words, the chance of inhibitor development in gene therapy is greater than 0.0%, but perhaps not much greater, and more related to the mechanics of the immune system than the platform of gene therapy. So could that happen in the context of hemophilia gene therapy? I think it's possible. But we haven't seen an inhibitor induced actively just because we're expressing factor eight or factor nine in the liver in the context of AV gene delivery. I present that as a level of reassurance for these patients. As Patrick, I'm sure, can attest to, fear of developing inhibitor, at least until recent years, has been first and foremost in most patients' minds and has always been an influence on the products that they choose to infuse on a daily basis. And as Patrick, I would just like to add, he's right. The fact that we now have a non-factor therapy and can use a drug like emicizumab in patients who develop inhibitors, I think that's given us maybe a little bit more confidence related to that risk. So I wouldn't say I completely downplay the inhibitor risk, but it's not a major part of the safety discussion that I have with patients around this. The genotoxicity is a challenging one. And what Lindsay's alluding to here is, does the fact that these vector elements at some low level decimal percentage rate integrate into the genome of the patient, mostly in a random fashion, does that carry any risk? And we aren't used to this. No, we're not used to discussion about vector integration and the nuances of the genome when considering hemophilia treatments. This is yet another aspect of considering gene therapy as a treatment option that simply is not present when considering factor replacement or emicizumab. We can't really de-risk this element of gene therapy with this platform. Reducing the dose could be potentially advantageous, but then you also have the flip side of that coin, which is what allows you to get a reduced dose. Generally, it's a higher tropism or a higher targeting rate and, and higher transduction of the cells. And so we don't actually know that lower dose equates with less gene insertion risk. I think ultimately, if we do feel like we have to de-risk this application of gene therapy, it probably has to be a different platform. And we maybe have to look to the future to an alternative type of gene therapy, like a cellular therapy or something else, where we're not randomly inserting transgenes into the genome. Admittedly, portions of that flew right over my head. And I'm sure that's true for many patients and families who may be listening. But I do think Dr. Pipe's next statement brings the point home. Where I come down in the conversation with the patients is we're talking about a theoretical risk and not a measurable risk. And it's not that we can't measure the integrations, but we can't measure the risk of those integrations. So how do you have a conversation about a theoretical risk? But what I have to talk to them about is I don't know. I don't know if this transgene random insertion at some basal level in their chromosomes actually carries a risk that's going to potentially affect their adverse health. We will collect the data, but by the time that data is available and of sufficient strength to actually influence clinical decision making, almost certainly we will be well beyond this platform of therapy onto a, a new approach. 
It's often the case with a novel therapy that by the time a sufficient sample size of, quote, real-world data is aggregated, that the approach itself has already been advanced. This is yet another challenge to navigating shared decision-making around gene therapy. So I have to talk to my patients that this is a known unknown, and unfortunately, I can't measure this risk. All I can tell them is over the long-term data, the best that I've seen, 10 years in the human trials, haven't seen any evidence of genotoxicity in the preclinical animal work over the lifespan of many animals, no evidence of genotoxicity. There are some specific preclinical studies in certain animals which have produced tumors, but maybe there's some different biology there. Very challenging concept to bring to this patient population, or really to any patient population to be talking about theoretical risk without real measurable numbers. Maybe Patrick can lend his insights about how he would receive this type of information. This reminds me of other moments where I've had new product or treatment decisions to consider. I've been really well managed on X, but now Y is available and Y promises these things. Is this the right moment for me to make that switch? When I've made those switches or recently when I went through an ankle fusion, not a dissimilar process of information gathering from medical experts, scientific experts, what data exists. And then for me, what the tipping point has been, and I think would be if I were to make the decision that gene therapy is right for me, are conversations with other people that have hemophilia. Talking to people who I believe are like me for whatever reason, because there's no such thing as certainty here. There's a certain amount of unknown no matter what. But after I have a discussion with Dr. Pipe and we're in the clinic and I've gotten as much information there, to then turn to the guys around my age who I see as similar to me in various ways and to hear their lived experience and just let that absorb and see how that influences how my brain works, what I think about, what flags, what I wonder about the next day on a walk with my dog. And I find that those are the tipping points. So after I've gotten all the medical, then I want that social piece. I want my peer group to give me some additional insights before I make a full decision with as much, if incomplete, information. So can I add, add to that, Patrick? Because I actually had this illuminating conversation with one of my gene therapy recipients. So when I was asking him why he wanted to embrace this platform of therapy, he very definitively said, the way healthcare is going in this country, I have no guarantee that my healthcare will continue to be paid for in the way it is currently. And he saw that his lifeline of factor replacement therapy was at risk in his future. And in his mind, that was a very real measurable risk to him. So when I'm having a conversation about theoretical risk of tumors that may or may not ever happen related to this platform of therapy, it just gets dwarfed by the real risk in his mind is, I don't want to be in a situation where I don't know that my therapy can be paid for. That's a very specific example, but it shows you that there are certain elements of people's therapy or just their daily life that are of immense concern to them. The gene therapy has the potential to alter that for them and really take them to a new tier of health equity and satisfaction for them. Go ahead, Lindsay. So first, I agree with Steve. But I will say, I think if we think outside of the hemophilia population, we're starting to get some sense of the theoretical risk of genotoxicity. 
If you think about the spinal muscular atrophy population, these babies are being treated with a vector that was licensed approaching five years ago. There's probably four plus thousand patients that have been treated. Now, we don't know, but as far as we know, there hasn't been an epidemic of pedicellar carcinoma in these patients. Now, whether they're being screened or not, you might just not know yet. But I will say, in my mind, it puts a little bit of ease around this theoretical risk. We're getting a larger body of evidence around this in human populations. And so with the nuances of theoretical risk, we probably have to look outside of hemophilia to help start to define this. And we do have a larger body of information that can help us at least think about this risk. And you know what? Some of that information really needs to be brought into the hemophilia literature, Lindsay, I think, because I think it adds important perspective. Margaret, to what extent does an individual's underlying liver status affect candidacy for gene therapy at this point in time, given all the uncertainties? This is a very important point to see, because of course, if the patients of red have a liver health that's compromised, the chances for the treatment to work well is also decreased. I think we can evaluate our patients. We know that this population have been affected quite a lot, and the liver health is a big issue for them. So I think we have some tools that can help us to determine if the uh, liver health is good enough. But again, we don't have all the answers. I also bring to the patients when it comes to the discussion, my own experience with my patients in terms of the expectations. There are some patients that comes with huge expectations and they are very optimistic with the possibility to receive a new treatment for several reasons. And this is actually one of the challenges because sometimes the patient has a huge expectations and everything is prepared. We discuss with the family, we discuss with everyone. And in the end, they became a candidate that at least for now, then we are learning how to deal with this. I was going to ask a question like, what's good enough? You said making sure that the liver is good enough to undergo gene therapy. What is good enough? Are the same criteria that were applied in clinical trials? Are you thinking more liberally about that? I think in general, people are following the guidance that came from the clinical trials. And there is some language in the label about liver health. And I think people are going to stay true to that. There's going to be some blurring of the lines on the strict outcomes for certain patients. It's part of the shared decision-making, and I think it just has to be taken into account along with everything else. I feel very badly for someone who's very motivated for gene therapy and then on some technicality is ruled ineligible in the context of a clinical trial because there's one lab parameter that's slightly out of whack. I think in the clinical realm, we'll be able to deal with that a little bit more fairly, if you like. Having concluded our segment on safety, we'll take a quick break and pick back up with conversation around education. Stay with us. Living with hemophilia comes with unique challenges, especially for parents. Sanofi is committed to providing education and resources for the whole family because life shouldn't be limited and neither should your parenting journey. Sanofi's Your Family, Your Way Forward program explores how living with hemophilia can impact parents and shares strategies for finding a balance and a path forward that helps the whole family thrive. Redefine what's possible for you and your family. Visit redefininghemophilia.com to browse resources and find an event near you. 
Welcome back. Dr. D. McKelly poses the following interesting questions related to education and the educational process for patients. Now, a lot of you have alluded to the fact that education is critically important here. And I wanted to ask two questions about education. I was reading an interesting article from uh, the Dutch group, and it was ethically focused. And one of the questions and one of the conclusions that they came to is that maybe gene therapy ought not at this point in time be described as a curative therapy, but rather another therapeutic option. And I'm just wondering in the educational arena, how are we describing this and how should it be described? And the other point I'd like to get to, Patrick brought up the fact that he talks to his doctor, but then he talks to other patients. He talks to other hemophilia community. How important is a group rather than a one-on-one approach to education so that each patient may benefit from all the multiple perspectives. I'm pretty careful not to use the word cure. I think as a general phenotype, doctors don't like this word. So we've been conditioned not to use it anyways. But yeah, we just don't have enough information to confirm that possibility. The concept is that you improve phenotype. Ideally, it's a one-time life phenotypic changing therapy, but we don't know. We just don't have enough data. And then you talk about these questions of durability in hemophilia A, et cetera. Your level of comfort in using the word cure diminishes further. Very conservatively, there are three conversations that I have with an individual sort of to first gauge their interest, then maybe a little bit deeper dive on the second round. And then when they're ready to proceed, that's where we're really going into a comprehensive understanding of what this is and what this isn't, sort of expectation setting, as Margaret had said. I have to tell them that ultimately this is going to be a very good definitive prophylactic therapy that has the potential to be transformative on its own. But We are not addressing the fundamental pathology of hemophilia, which is joint disease, which begins in childhood. And so how can you ever start to talk about a curative therapy when you're applying the patch, so to speak, so far down the line that all you can do is maybe change the trajectory of the decline of joint health as opposed to arresting it completely or preventing it? If we're going to have conversations about a curative therapy, it has to be a platform that's applied so early in life that the pathology of hemophilic bleeding in joints is completely abrogated. And then maybe we can embrace that cure word a little bit more favorably when we're at that setting. And I've seen some future therapies that have given me a glimmer of hope that maybe At some point in the next five to 10 years, I could be actually treating a pediatric patient with a genetic therapy that has the option to prevent joint disease definitively. But for now, I don't think that's a reality that we've achieved with this platform of therapy. Patrick, what do you think? If you were to advise this august panel about how education should happen at the patient level, what would it look like? Ideally, it's multi-pronged because the education is the education on the science. It's the education on the process. It's the education on what some of the emotional components may be, what may come up. There's numerous pieces to it. So if I'm seeking my science education from a caregiver friend, unless that caregiver friend has scientific background, I'm setting myself up for a suboptimal decision 
my science education, I should be going to my doctor or some resources from the national patient organizations that are validated. Now, if I want education on the process of working with your insurance company on getting the right approvals or the logistics of the follow-up visits or how did it feel to you six, eight months out, for that type of education, I need to go to other people in the patient community. So I think it's important when we, from a leadership perspective, talk about education that we remind ourselves to ladder down from that word. There is, it's not one bullet point. It doesn't come from one source. There isn't one expert to educate on the topic of gene therapy. It's multi-pronged from different expert points of view. And for someone truly considering the therapy, getting insights from all of those prongs, I think is critical if the goal is to make an optimal decision. Well, listen, our time is drawing to a close. So I want to get to where we need to go from here and get all of your opinions about where we need to go from here. Let's start with ongoing clinical trials. What are we learning from, or what do we intend to learn from the ongoing clinical trials in hemophilia A and B gene therapy? I share Steve's sentiment here. I'm a pediatrician. I would like to treat children. I'm pretty skeptical that the current approaches will ultimately have any major benefit to, for pediatric patients. The long-term goal, I think, is an approach that you could use in children and in adults. We have some data that are quite promising in heme B. It's not necessarily been a, at least reported for hemophilia A. I'll just note that the way to deliver DNA to the nucleus is best way to do it remains AAV vector. So I think we will be stuck with AAV on probably the short and at least medium term. But I think the broader long-term hope is that you could have a way of imparting benefit from ideally a baby, right? And then have lifelong therapeutic benefit. But I do not believe that's on the short term per se, certainly not for hemophilia A, but you know, one could be surprised, of course. I agree with Lindsay. I think there are some parts of this population that we still needed to bring to the eligibility possibility for these treatments. And this including the children, this including the inhibitor patients that we have some clinical trials discussing that right now for hemophilia A patients with inhibitors. And uh, I think we can improve the unpredictability. I think this is one of the very difficult issues to discuss to the patients. And we have this huge part of the population worldwide that probably don't have access to the treatment. And I hope we improve the accessibility for the treatment for the patients. So broadening accessibility is going to be really important. And what about immune tolerance? Do you think we are going to be able to use gene therapy for immune tolerance for inhibitor patients? What does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. It's being already addressed in active clinical trials. I don't have any insights on the results from that. There's reasons to believe from preclinical models that endogenous expression of factor eight or factor nine could both prevent inhibitors, but also could address active inhibitors that have been refractory from protein exposure earlier in life. It's exciting to consider that the transgene expression itself might prevent or might be able to eradicate pre-existing inhibitors that have not responded to traditional forms of ITI. Studies are ongoing. More to come. I'm open to see what the results are actually going to show. In general, though, I'm pretty skeptical just because the human immune system has just proved to be so much more complex in almost every situation that it's hard to definitively identify a single platform that's going to address the situation in all patients. 
you know, relate to what I'm looking for in other active clinical trials to deal with the challenges we've talked about, predictability, variability, durability, gene editing. I'm really anxious to see what those results produce. Some of the cellular therapies also, I think, have a potential to deal with that. One thing we haven't mentioned are new transgenes, particularly for factor eight. Clearly, the reason we have arrived with HEME-B is because of the influence of the modified transgene with the Padua variant. That's the only reason in my mind that these products have been able to be approved. We need a modified transgene approach to maybe get us over the hump with some of the challenges with hemophilia A as well. And those trials are actively underway currently. The use of this Padua variant in the development of hemophilia B gene therapy is often credited, as it is here by Dr. Pipe, as being a primary reason for the durability demonstrated in the heme B gene therapy clinical trials as opposed to the heme A. Is there an equivalent to the Padua variant for hemophilia A gene therapy? That is one of the big questions ongoing clinical trials will hopefully answer. As far as the immunogenicity risk related to AV, I think the only way forward that I can see is to adopt some non-viral approaches. There are some strategies that are being looked at. Not as efficient, as Lindsay said, there's nothing more efficient than a viral vector that has tropism to the liver to deliver your transgene. So if we can get over the hump with some non-viral strategies, that opens up all kinds of opportunities for titrated dosing to avoid some of the toxicity issues we talked about, but also redosing over the course of a lifespan. So that's attractive to me. Current gene therapies leverage AAV, adeno-associated viruses. Now, as highlighted, viral vectors, which these are, are quite efficient for delivering a transgene, but viral vectors mean we must contend with the immune system's potential for a response to the inactivated virus being introduced in the first place. Non-viral strategies for delivering a transgene would avoid this challenge altogether, but come with their own set of challenges, which of course are currently being explored. And then from the genotoxicity perspective, I think this is something where the ex vivo cellular therapies really have the opportunity to improve because we can do controlled gene editing in a cell culture system, fully characterize those cells if you like to de-risk them before they're given to the patient. And then you have a cellular therapy that's delivering your protein expression. I think over the next five years, we're all going to see examples of these that uh, are going to give us some new hope for the future, hopefully. This is all really good. And there was an educational session at ASH in 2022 that described the progress, described the challenges, and said that the challenges would be addressed through a rapidly evolving research landscape. So is the research landscape evolving rapidly enough? Is there anything that isn't being studied that we should be looking at in the future? Are we moving forward aggressively enough to solve these challenges? I don't know if we're moving fast enough, honestly. Many people are involved in this work, obviously, and people are working valiantly. I think we're stymied a bit in clinical trial, and the trials are very expensive to do. There's a large theoretical market for this, but the trials are very expensive to do, and I think maybe they're stymieing our progress a bit at this point. I'm just thinking about my own experience, uh, and I started to be involved with gene therapy in the late 90s in the first generation. So 
I think it was not fast. Of course, there are so many challenges that we still need to deal with. But I think back to 20 years ago, this was so far away in the way that we are seeing. But of course, now that this is happening, I'm very optimistic with what we are seeing. I think it's a platform that is working with some challenges, not working for everyone. It's improving. And there is a future that we will see uh, probably more successful uh, new treatments coming. A lot of optimism. Steve, what do you think? Well, to some degree, this community has been spoiled over the last 20 years because of the rapid advances that have just almost yearly produced new therapies that have been brought to the clinic. I don't think that's going to happen with gene therapy. I think we brought this platform. It's arrived. There's going to be a limited number of approved products. And if a patient, if this isn't right for them right now, they're going to have a wait. This isn't like iPhones where we're going to get a new improved gene therapy every year. Whatever is going to leapfrog this current platform is miles away based on where they are in the clinical trial programs and how long it takes to establish the safety and efficacy in the clinic. We're probably five to 10 years away from another platform of therapy that could supplant this one. Patrick, if you're not ready for this version of gene therapy, I think you're going to have to hunker down for quite a while to see something that's really going to capture your vision for the next round. Patrick, I'm going to give you the final word. There's two prongs that emerge for me. The first thinking more with an advocate hat on, I feel obliged to point out that the vast majority of people with hemophilia around the world don't have access to standard of care therapy today, which would be prophylactic use of either factory replacement therapy or emicizumab in the case of heme. Most patients don't. So we still have access and reach challenges all around the world to get good quality product to patients on a consistent basis, on a predictable basis, wherever they may be. And I feel obliged to remind us of that in the context of discussion about gene therapy as well. On a more personal note, I've shared this before. I remember as a kid in the mid nineties, a newspaper clip my uncle gave me that said hemophilia to be cured by gene therapy by 1999. And at the time I'm a child and adolescent with an inhibitor, I'm missing a lot of school. I am morbidly obese. I'm having a lot of breakthrough bleeds. I'm not engaging with my friends. My prospects for my future feel narrowed. So at that time, the idea of being cured felt like the great white whale, right? This is the promise for the future I want. But now 25 plus years later, I'm very well managed on my current therapy. I have a great life. I have a great family. I have a great career. I feel very fulfilled. What I think about is my daughter with mild hemophilia A, who's an obligate carrier. What I think about are her future children. What I think about is really not my management, but the future of my family. What will it look like for them? So I'm fine with Dr. Pipe's point that what's available as gene therapy for hemophilia A right now is what we have, and it's gonna be this way for a minute. That's okay for me, so long as what we're working on stands to benefit my future generations even more exponentially. That's where my mind goes as we think about the future and what I see as the outstanding need. Okay, I'm back with Dr. D. McKelly, just the two of us now. We just finished our discussion with Drs. Ocello, George, and Pipe. I want to hear from you, Dr. D. McKelly. First off, great job leading the conversation. There was a lot to get through and discuss. As always, we don't get to everything we want to. But I'm curious, what stood out to you from that conversation? What are your major takeaways having just finished? 
Yeah, it was a great conversation. And I really appreciated how candid and informed everybody was. And I, I guess if I was to really think about my major takeaway, I would basically say that the community is very sanguine about where they are. There's a sense of accomplishment, while at the same time, there's a sense of a lot more work to do. I think that what we got from this conversation was a good picture of where the expectations have been met, where the challenges remain, and that the work in bringing an eventual curative therapy to hemophilia has definitely not been achieved, but is also was definitely being pursued and in progress. And I was really impressed by the grasp that the community of certainly physician scientists who have been working such a long time in this area have of what they have to work with currently and what the future looks like. So I guess those would be my takeaway. Yeah, I was struck by a comment Dr. Pipe made with regard to a patient who had fear that his health care could be taken away and with it, his medication for hemophilia and therefore had particular interest in gene therapy and its long-term therapeutic benefit without redosing. I thought that was important because to me, it illustrated just how individual the risk-benefit equation is, particularly with something that has as much nuance, variability, and unpredictability as AAV gene therapy for hemophilia A in particular, and with respect to the other available treatment options. So it is a reminder of just how complex the decision-making process is, which for me as a patient kind of comes back to ultimately, is this right for me? After I've heard all the data, and I've heard all of the asterisks, is this right for me is the question that I have to answer. And for that individual, the answer was yes. And in part because of that fear, which I don't share. So my question list and what matters to me is different and that's okay. So I, I was appreciative of that level of specificity. And I also liked that, I think all three of our contributors highlighted the remarkable, that may have been a word of Dr. George's, the remarkable achievement of AAV gene therapy for hemophilia A and B, albeit imperfect, albeit the differences between A and B and the available platforms quite different and important to differentiate, but that in general, this is a success story. And I thought that was appropriate because I can certainly apply my skeptical, or to use another term of Dr. George's, my optimistic belief we can do better to such a degree that I can forget to appreciate just how remarkable it is to be where we are. So those were some of the things that stood out for me. Yeah, no, I think those are important observations. Actually, I was also struck by that comment from Steve's patient. And one of the aspects of gene therapy that we never had a chance to get to in this session was actually the cost of gene therapy in and of itself. So when we right. think about the cost of healthcare, the question is how does the cost of that therapy and insurability actually affect the discussion? And it's something mm -hmm. that we didn't get a chance to explore, but I think that there might be healthcare cost issues with that therapeutic as well. Maybe that's something that we can explore sometime in the future. 
On behalf of Dr. Donna D. McKelly, my sincere and grateful thanks to Dr. Margaret Ozello, Dr. Steve Pipe, and Dr. Lindsay George for lending their time, expertise, and candor to this program. Sanofi is our program's featured advertiser, without whom none of the hours and hours of rich, data-driven conversation about hemophilia would be possible. So thank you, Sanofi for your continued support, and as always, thanks to my partner in podcasting here on the Global Hemophilia Report, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, for all of your expertise and leadership. To an earlier point made by Dr. D. McKelly, there are more relevant discussions to be had around such things as the cost of gene therapy, and I'm inclined to point out that starting in January of 2024, a sister podcast to this one called The Bloodstream Podcast We'll be regularly producing segments on real-world stories and considerations of gene therapy and hemophilia. So after you've finished subscribing to the Global Hemophilia Report and are done sharing this episode with all of your friends and colleagues on social media, subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast as well to stay connected to the latest pertaining to gene therapy and hemophilia. Next month, the Global Hemophilia Report picks back up with discussion on quality of life. From a data perspective, what exactly is it? How is it tracked? And what does it teach us? We unpack that next time. So be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss it. You've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and until next time.